everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 35. Today we're going back to technical specifications and we're going to talk specifically about MOE and MOR. That's modulus of elasticity and modulus of rupture. But before I get into that, I do want to do uh, a question which is kind of sort of a, a kickback. It's related to the last episode we did on case hardening. Tommaso wrote in and he said that um, I was watching YouTube. Actually, he was watching YouTube with his father. Um, he, he says, I introduced my father to YouTube. Now he spends hours watching videos on sawmills and people milling lumber. But in one particular video, he saw the guy put all the boards he had just sawn into a kiln type structure and bake them at 170 degrees for 24 hours, then let them cool for 24 hours. He said it was to kill pests and then he could pull them out and set them up to air dry. What Tommaso wonders is, would this case harden the boards? It might kill the pests, but what's to stop them from coming back? Is this a smart approach to getting pest-free lumber and, uh, and air dried? So Tommaso, really good question. In order to heat treat a board, and heat treatment is the only thing that the um, USDA considers effective at handling pests. So if you are wanting to ship lumber at all, you have to have a heat treatment certificate, especially for any of the species that are currently affected. Things like ash, walnut, um, white oak, red oak, all of them have blights going on right now. And if you want to ship them at all, you have to have a heat treatment certificate. That is the only thing that is acceptable. And you're bringing your wood up to a temperature of 170 degrees and leaving it there, holding it at that temperature for 24 hours. That is will kill the bugs. It most definitely will kill the bugs and generally it prevents them from coming back because not only does it kill them, but it also will, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Harden some of the uh, sugars and saps and things like that, that, that are already, um, that are in there that have attracted the bugs. Plus, I guess they probably, the, the, the lumber just smells like death at that point. The bugs go, oh, I don't want any part of that. It smells like death. But that, that is an acceptable method for heat treating your boards. But here's the thing. How quickly does it take, do you take to get that board up to 170? And in typical kiln drying schedule, you will get your boards up that high. Some board species will go even higher than 170. And what you're doing is actually building in that 24 hour hold into your drying schedule. So you're killing two birds with one stone. You're kiln drying your wood and you're holding it at that higher temperature for 24 hours to kill the bugs. So what you do is you show your USDA inspector your kiln certificate or your kiln schedule and say, okay, yes, these have been at 170 plus for 24 hours and then you cool them down. So the guy you're talking about, he, he did the right thing by you know cooling it down for 24 hours slowly. What I wonder is how long does he take to get them up to 170? And he maybe didn't say that in YouTube, but if you've got a kiln that's already on 170 degrees and you throw those boards in, yes, there is a very strong chance that you will case harden those. It's certainly going to take time to raise those boards up to 170 degrees, and even just opening the kiln and bringing in cooler lumber is going to drop the temperature a little bit. But if it is already at 170, there's every chance that those boards are going to be very quickly raised to that temperature, and that's where case hardening can occur. So what he may not have said is he's putting the lumber into a cool kiln, then raising the temperature over time up to 170, holding it for 24 hours, shutting it off and letting it cool for 24 hours. If that, let's say it takes him 12 hours or even like four hours to get it up to 170 degrees, um, then holds it for 24, that's probably not, depending on the thickness certainly, that's probably not gonna be enough to kiln dry a board down to six to 8%. So, what he's trying to do is, okay, let's just kill the bugs and then air dry them um, 
from there because you haven't really lowered the temperature down that much. I think he's probably lowering the, temp lowering the temperature dramatically faster than it would with air drying. So you will not get some of the same sweet working properties of air dried material. More than likely you'll end up with a little bit more hardened cell wall from just holding at 170 degrees for 24 hours. There is every possibility you can strike a balance there and kind of get a, a, a half kiln dried species. So, you know, the fibers have hardened a little bit and, and make the board a little bit more stable, but they still have a bit of that pliability that you might get with air dried material. The thing is, if it is 170 degrees when he throws those boards in, yes, there's going to be a very strong chance that you will case harden them. More than willing, I'm more than willing to bet that he just, this, it's YouTube, you know, <laughs> you can't make a video longer than five minutes and no one will watch it. He may have just kind of neglected the fact that he raised it up over time. So I hope that answers your question. But for everybody that writes in and asks me about killing bugs, there are other ways to try and do it, but the only really tried and true way is to bake the suckers. 170 degrees or 180 degrees Fahrenheit, that is, for 24 hours. They've got to hold that temperature. It can't deviate at all. Got to hold it for 24 hours in order to kill those bugs. Okay, let's move on and talk about MOE and MOR. So this, these are, these are um, numbers that you're going to find pretty regularly because they are kind of in, I would say, maybe the top five of things you want to look at. I really like to look at these personally really close. When I start looking at, at Jenkins numbers and things to start with, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, I will very quickly turn to the MOE and MOR numbers because they think they can tell you a lot about how a piece of wood or a species of wood is going to function in application. How is it going to function as a shelf that spans a certain distance? How is it going to function as the, uh, a table leg or, or a chair leg? Or if I have a span over a certain distance, how will that tabletop function? Do I need an apron underneath it? This is all about the stiffness of the wood, that's modulus, modulus of elasticity, or MOE, or the bending strength of the wood, which is modulus of rupture. So let's talk about these. There are all kinds of tests, uh, AS, uh, what is it, ASTE 12.6 or something like that. There's a variety of standardized tests used. And the uh, formula itself is very complex, involving lots of different E sub E's and things like that. And you can do this formula, you can essentially calculate this formula for any thickness of wood that's used. But one of the standards you will find is that the wood that's tested is generally done at 12% moisture content. And that's a particularly key thing to note. As the wood gets wetter, it's going to have even more bending strength. It may have lower modulus of elasticity or stiffness because as you bend a wet wood, anybody who's steam bent knows that it will, it's certainly a lot easier to bend, but it also can be made to hold that shape. So the elasticity drops, but the bending strength goes up. It can, it can bend more when the wood is wet. The converse is the opposite when you dry the wood. So a lot of the numbers that you find, if you look up the modulus of rupture or the bending strength for say maple. And you look at that number, that number is actually going to be higher or stronger than what you would actually get if you bought a kiln dried piece of material that's been dried down to six to 8%. So it's, it's important to keep these things in mind, but honestly, start looking at MOR and MOE numbers and you're going to see these massively huge numbers. 18 million foot pounds or 18 million uh, pascals. 
20 million. <laughs> They're very, very large numbers. And as usual, it's not so much the number we care about, but the difference between the numbers of different species. If you have an understanding of how well uh, a maple, hard maple shelf will respond under load, you know, what is its stiffness? What is its MOE number? Well, you can look at maple's MOE number. Actually, let's look at it. The elastic modulus number of hard maple is 1.8 million. We'll just round, round down a little bit. 1.8 million for hard maple. Well, then you can look at another species and see, is that number bigger or smaller? And you can automatically know, okay, this is how it's going to perform in relation to a species that I already know. The bending strength and elastic strength of wood is certainly important, but these numbers really come into play when you're talking about sheet goods. And plywoods, particle boards, MDF, this is really where a lot of people care about these numbers because a lot of times these uh, plywood is, is used a lot, sheet goods used a lot in construction of furniture and construction of homes and things like that. What does this do to the overall structure? And sheet goods are definitely a big deal. The key is if you were to go out searching for a specific specification to run this test, you're not really going to find it other than 12% moisture content because the thickness of the sample, the width of the sample, the length of the sample, the space between the points that you press on the board, like the, the span in other words, will all vary and those numbers get plugged into the formula and that's what gives you these numbers. For the most part, when you look up, like if you go to the wood database and you look up modules of rupture on, um, again, hard maple, because I happen to have that page up in front of me, what's happening is there is a board that's placed on two points, the two points being near the edges, and then another uh, piston comes down right in the middle and presses down on that, bending the structure. At the moment when that structure cracks and breaks, or more importantly, the pressure that's being applied, you will see that pressure dramatically fall off. So if you look at the graph, a line graph of an MOR test, you'll see that line going up and up and up and up and up, and then there's a point where it immediately drops down. That's because the wood itself, the cells rupture, and the force that's exerted on that um, um, stress meter immediately drops off. You know. Um, so it's at that point. What is that point when the cells rupture? Whether it's a hardwood piece or a piece of particle board, there is a point in which that pressure down causes the cells to rupture. For the most part, we're talking about a span of about 24 inches. So the two static pieces that the board rests on tend to be about 24 inches apart. And then the uh, the part that actually presses down presses right in the middle. So 12 inches from each, uh, each of those static members. And then again, the thickness will vary. The width is generally around three inches, but again, you might be testing side bending strength. You might be testing face bending strength. So the orientation of the board will play a difference. And if you look real deep, you can actually start to find various MOR numbers, MOR tests that are done to, ses, to test side bend, to test face bend. This is particularly important when you're looking at flooring species and things like that. The important part is, I don't wanna to get too caught up in the actual testing methodology, but the important part is a number is generated and for most technical specifications in lumber species, they're using the same um, situation, same uh, um, species size and things like that. The forest product labor laboratory that's putting out these numbers is using a uniform amount. Knowing exactly what that is doesn't really 
help you all that much. Because as I said, these numbers are so high, it is rare that we're gonna run into situations where you look at a board and go, oh no, that MOR number is way too low to use in this piece of furniture I'm building. No, it's more understanding that relationship from one species to another. Modulus of elasticity or stiffness, so that's a particularly important, because now we're talking about span. If you've ever built a bookshelf and you've loaded it up with books and you come back a year or two later and you can see that shelf has a distinct bow to it. It has sagged under the weight over the years. The modulus of rupture number will be below the amount of force, the static force that's been exerted on that. Now there's some other things at play here because this is just sag over time. This is just a slowly uh, elongation or stretching of the fibers in that shelf. The modulus of elasticity test essentially is similar to the bending strength or our MOR test, where you've got a board that's set on two points. That board is generally about 24 inches long. Then there is another piece that comes down from the top right in the middle and starts pressing. And what you're trying to do is deform that board, bend that board to a certain line below the center line. That distance below the center line, again, can be taken up, can be accounted for in the um, Young's modulus formula. And then when the pressure is, is let off, the board then comes back up to that center line or back to flat. And you're testing how much pressure does it take to hit the set deformation. So if I say I want to be able to bend this board two inches off center, how much pressure does it take to bend the center of that board down to um, that, that deviation, that deformation number? Now, if it ruptures before it gets there, well, then you've learned something as well. You now know that the bending strength is lower there. So you also may have to change your deformation number. If it ruptures at two inches and you're trying to go to three inches, well, then you know you need to set that lower. In general, that deformation, that, that um, curve that's created is quite a bit smaller, so you can get a standardized number without the species breaking. So again, this is particularly important because if you think about a deck, a deck has joists underneath it, and those deck boards go down on a nail, they're screwed to the joists. And if you create too large of a span between those joists, you'll get some flexing of the deck boards, and that the whole deck will feel kind of springy as you walk across it. Over the years, we've come up with best practices in building a deck and setting our joists 16 inches on center. Sometimes they go up to 24 inches on center. Then you start to see some springiness in that deck, especially if you're using three quarter inch thick decking material. If it's a commercial boardwalk or something and they're generally using two by or one and three quarter, one and a half thick material, you're not gonna get a whole lot of spring back over a 24 inch span. But for the most part, people are setting their joists 16 or 12 inches apart to eliminate any possibility of sag because the modulus of elasticity over a 24 inch span tells us you know, it's, it's X amount of, of pascals, X amount of pounds for, um, per foot, per inch, excuse me, foot pounds per inch. And, you know, the engineers have played with all this to figure out, okay, you know, how much force is put on the average residential deck, the average commercial deck, the average boardwalk, et cetera. And that's where really the 16 or 12 inches on center comes into play. The same thing could be said with um, panel strength. And, and looking at studs in a wall set 16 inches on center, and you've got a panel over top of that. Now granted, sheathing panels are not really meant to be all that structural. They do stiffen up uh, a, a stud stick frame wall a little bit just because they, they fasten things together, they skin either side of it. But as far as impact force directly into the wall, bending strength and, and elasticity, that's not really that big of a deal. But once you flip that wall horizontal and you start walking on the wall, 
becomes a floor <laughs> or a ceiling, now the amount of sag or the amount of springiness you get in that sheathing becomes particularly important. And this is all about modulus of elasticity. So, you know, it's, it's interesting how over the, the decades, the centuries, the millennia, certain species have come to be prized for certain applications. And that's really because of these numbers, because of the bending strength and the stiffness. So let's look, for example, at um, Osage Orange. Osage Orange is what we primarily call it in North America, but a lot of times this is also called bowwood or bois d'arc in the French, meaning literally bowwood. You're building a bow as in bow and arrow, and Osage Orange was the prime species for that because it's got a very high bending strength. You can exert a great deal of force on this, on this board before it ruptures. In other words, I can string, uh, string this up in a bow and pull back an arrow with a great deal of force before it's gonna rupture and it's gonna shoot that arrow a long, long way. Moreover, the elasticity, the amount of deformation that I can, that I can um, create here and the amount of force required to deform that bow a certain distance is going to transfer to that much force going back and throwing that, that uh, arrow an even longer distance. So high numbers in both are really prime for making a bow and arrow, which is why Osage Orange is called bowwood because it is probably one of the perfect species for that. It's got incredibly high um, MOE at almost 1.7 million uh, the MOR is 18.6 million. So again, very, very high numbers. It's kind of the, if that's the application you're looking for, you're looking for, you know, a lot of bending and a lot of, of think of, of stiffness almost as the force that exerts as it writes itself. You bend it to a certain amount and then the force that exerts as it straightens back out, that, that explosive force is really that modulus of elasticity. So the strong bending strength means I can bend that bow a very, very long way. You know, certainly there's only so far you can bend a bow before the tip of the arrow comes past it, and then that's not a good thing. But you can shorten the bow, you can elongate the bow to, to create uh, more force and shooting, at a lot, shooting that arrow a lot further. Now, letting go of the bowstring and knowing that the modulus of elasticity, the stiffness is a really high number, you know that that force of spring back is going to hurl that arrow so much further. So here is a, a truly dynamic situation where you're constantly pulling that bowstring back and launching things. <laughs> Hopefully the, the things you're launching are arrows and, and nothing else. But you can see that's a, why those numbers are so high and why that species has long been prized for bows and arrows. English yew is another one. You think of you know, Robin Hood. <laughs> Most of the English longbows were made out of yew, or in some instances they were made out of oak, specifically European brown oak. But English yew was kind of prized by the, um, by the British Army for all of their archers because it performs really, really well. And we look at today's numbers of, of uh, MOR and MOE on English yew, and you'll find that they're very similar to Osage Orange. Another example that I'd like to talk about with um, bending strength and uh, elasticity, that little bit more modern example, is baseball bats. Today, wooden baseball bats are primarily made out of maple. Now there's a lot of reasons for that. Maple become, is, is a lot easier to find. You can get perfectly clear maple, which I should say this as well. If you have a knot in your board, obviously that's going to weaken the bending strength and the modulus of elasticity. So that's something else to keep in mind. If you're building something structurally and there are knots or defects in that length of wood, your numbers are gonna drop pretty substantially. 
So baseball bats, you can get clear maple and you can turn a baseball bat. It has a regular hard maple, sugar maple, has, let me pull up the numbers here, has very strong, uh, there we go. See, so the bending strength is 15,000 foot-pounds. Um, elastic uh, modulus or stiffness is 1.8 million. So again, we're very similar to, to something like hickory. And if you go back far enough in Major League Baseball, the bats were made with hickory. Well, you see a bat broken today and it shatters. It blows apart and it sends these razor sharp maple shards places. The bending strength is quite high, but when the, um, the when a bat is broken, it's because essentially that bat has flexed as it's trying to accelerate the ball, as it's striking the ball. Maple being so dense and being a diffuse porous wood with a relatively high bending strength will absolutely shatter when too much force is put on. It doesn't have the bending strength to withstand it. And because it's very diffuse porous, it is very dense. It breaks apart almost like silica, like, like quartz would break apart. But again, going back far enough in Major League Baseball where they were using hickory bats and someone broke a bat, you would often see the bat just kind of splinter and you know still be attached and you see like the head of the bat swinging as the um, the baseball player takes his base or you know recognizes he's been you know out because somebody caught the ball or whatever that hickory has an incredibly incredibly high uh bending strength and also an even higher elastic or stiffness so when you hit that ball and you immediately halt its acceleration from the pitcher turn it around and accelerate it the opposite direction. There's a great deal of deformation in that bat. So high bending strength means that that bat is going to bend and it's not going to break, but the incredibly high elastic modulus. So again, hard maple had a bending strength of 20,200 and an elastic strength of 1.8 million. Hickory has a bending strength of 20,200, so 5,000 foot-pounds higher than hickory. The MOE, or the stiffness, is 2.1, almost 2.2 million foot-pounds per inch. So we're talking 250,000 foot-pounds per square inch higher than uh, hard maple. So it is bending, it's able to bend a lot longer as it decelerates that baseball to zero, and then the high elastic modulus, or that force to spring back to straight, throws and accelerates that baseball a heck of a lot farther. So hickory bats were the way to go. And anybody who tells you they've ever hit with a hickory bat and how it was a very sweet feel, because it would bend, you could kind of almost feel the ball slow down and then accelerate away. The other thing about hickory, you will always find it in things like shovel handles and ax handles, where there is a great deal of acceleration and, and deceleration. As you pick up a shovel to drive it into the ground, you pull it back and you accelerate towards the ground and then it hit the blade hits the ground and you know immediately slows down and decelerates. Now you may then step on the shovel to kind of drive that shovel blade further into the ground. Well, as you're stepping on the shovel, you're holding the handle up by your chest and you're exerting a great deal of bending force into that shovel. Well, every time you bend it, the fact that that hickory handle springs back even stronger allows that shovel to drive into the ground. And then as you scoop 
the, the dirt up and you throw it over your shoulder, you're accelerating that hickory handle back over your shoulder. You're causing that handle to bend a little. So again, high bending strength means that the handle won't break as you accelerate over your shoulder. As you suddenly stop to throw the, the, the dirt over your shoulder, the high elastic strength, the high stiffness then causes a huge amount of force as the handle springs back and it throws the, the dirt over your shoulder. The end result of this is using a hickory handle and a shovel is less tiring. The hickory is flexing and then straightening up and, and providing a great deal of force for that dirt as you throw it over your shoulder. An axe, hickory, I remember Roy Underhill did an episode about hickory and I think it was entitled The Wood That Built America because the axe handle requires a high amount of bending strength. You think about the force that occurs as you bring an ax kind of up over your shoulder, decelerate it to a stop, and then quickly accelerate it forward down towards the wood. Then as the ax handle makes contact with the wood, there is that little whip, that little sudden acceleration at the end. That is the stiffness. It's bent out of shape, it's deformed, and that stiffness, that MOE number that's so high in hickory is the force exerted as the handle quickly straightens back up. And it creates that massive sudden acceleration right when the blade of the ax hits the wood. And what it's what allows us with a single stroke to actually split a log in half. We would not, as humans, would not be able to create that kind of force. And if you have an ax handle that's plastic, like you will find a lot, or some sort of composite, or even an ax handle that's made out of another species of wood like maple, you will find that you don't get that little whip, that last little spring that allows you to cleanly snap a piece of firewood in half. Hickory handles are pretty much the standard in axes these days. You find anything that's not hickory and it's usually some sort of composite, and I actually can't speak to those numbers. I'm sure there's probably been some engineering that says those numbers are, are better than hickory or something like that. But there is a reason why when you go and buy an axe handle or a shovel handle, it's generally made out of hickory because of that high elastic modulus. So having an understanding there, really you begin to, to look at these numbers and, and these Osage Orange and Hickory to me are kind of the shining examples of high bending strength and high elastic modulus. And the combination of the two can really go a long way. If you have a species that is a lower bending strength, so it doesn't take that much force to, to bend it, but it has a high elastic modulus, that's fantastic because you, the human, don't have to exert much force in order to deform it out of shape. And then all you have to do is let it go to unleash this huge amount of potential energy into kinetic, which is your modulus of elasticity. So there's something to be said about there. When you start talking about building chairs where there's a lot of dynamic forces and bending and elasticity and things that come into play as you scoot a chair forward or you lean back on a chair, things like that, um, these, these numbers can become very, very important. So it is something to kind of keep in mind. It's not, well, we'll call it a little bit esoteric. You know, it's not a number that if I'm building a cabinet or something, I'm gonna look too much at these. I'm looking in Janka hardness. I'm looking at shearing strength to figure out, for me as a hand tool user, how difficult will this be to hand plane? How hard is this wood? How hard will it be to, to chop out a mortise or something like that? But once you start getting into dynamic applications or you're getting into load applications like shelves in a case or stretchers in a chair or a handle to put on your ax. These are things where you want that high, that, that ability to bend without breaking and that springback force that will help you uh, drive the ax blade into the wood a little bit more. 
So again, it's a number that you want to look at kind of down the list, but it's really important to understand these things and understand kind of the physics behind it and why certain woods work better. And again, if you ever are confused about the two, go back to that idea about the hickory versus maple baseball bat, or just think about how an ax works and how important that sudden acceleration at the end becomes. It's, it's a big deal, and it's something that I think will only deepen your understanding of how wood works and how wood as an entity can be stronger. The key difference in the, that you wanna think about is what, inf, what factors influence bending strength and elastic strength or stiffness. And as I mentioned in the baseball bat analogy, the diffuse porous, very small pore and high density of maple is really the element that defeats the maple baseball bat. The numbers, the, the hardness you will find of hickory and maple are very, very similar. But hickory is a ring porous wood with rather, rather large pores, very ordered in a neat little rings. So there are definite areas where there is more room for flex. There's more dead air for the wood to flex into without breaking. Whereas maple doesn't really have any dead space in it to break and it snaps or it fractures like you see in the baseball bat. It is the ordered nature and large wide open pores of hickory that makes it such a, a superior species for something like an ax handle or a shovel handle or a baseball bat. So here again, we're tying all this stuff together and there's a reason why I'm kind of walking through these in these episodes to look at each individual technical species because they all re relate to one another and they influence one another to make things better um, or, or to make things worse, to make one uh, particular spec function better or worse. There's a lot of interesting species out there that make no sense. If you look at the Janka hardness and you think, wow, this is a really hard wood, but then in working, you think this is not really that hard at all. I'm not really struggling with this. You have to look a little bit further down the chain and realize, oh, it's the pore structure that changes this or the bending strength that actually make this particular species so strong despite its really, really low density. It's really cool when you start to think about all these and combining them all together. So that I want to say kind of wraps up my dive into the technical specifications. We've hit on the major ones. And once you get beyond this into like um, compression strength and work to maximal load and things like that, you really are getting into heavy engineering factors that for most of us, when we are building furniture or heck, even if we're building bridges and decks, the numbers don't really play that big of a difference because they are so high. Wood is an incredibly strong building material, incredibly strong building material. And oh, by the way, it grows on trees. It's fully renewable. It is truly wonderful. And I remember when I started woodworking, I started thinking about, ooh, is this going to be strong enough? And I was always blown away by how thin of a piece of wood I could get away with and still have something very, very strong. So again, wood's awesome. It's incredibly strong. Just start looking at some of these technical spec numbers and you'll be in incredibly impressed by how high many of them are. When you start talking about millions of foot pounds here in bending strength, or excuse me, thousands, tens of thousands of foot pounds in bending strength and millions of pounds of uh, foot pounds of elastic or stiffness, that's pretty impressive. So normally I talk about this at the beginning of the show, but I do want to say thank you. A couple episodes ago, I talked about uh, Patreon. I haven't really mentioned it much for the show, but I guess bringing it up brought a lot more patrons in. So I've had uh, quite a few in the last couple of weeks. I do want to say thank you in particular to Andrew, Nate, Brad, and Chuck. You guys all sponsor the show at the level where 
I get to mention your name. <laughs> I do appreciate that. Everybody who helps the show continue to grow. If you are interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash lumber update. And um, I thank you for your support. So again, this kind of wraps it up on technical specs. If you have questions about the technical specs or if there's a particular specification that you wanted me to talk about that I didn't talk about, drop me a line. If you go to lumberupdate.com, there is a contact form there, or you can just drop me an email at lumberupdate at gmail.com. Well, thanks everybody for listening. And as always, go buy some wood. <laughs>